Hi, this is Victor Greta Jr. with Coders, and this week we're going to be talking to Justin Esker about software project management. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Comscope, thinking beyond today's technology to help you make the best decision for your network and your business. Hi, everybody. This is Victor. And this week on Coders, we are talking about software project management. Now, there are all sorts of software project management uh, programs. There's a lot of scope out there. In other words, are you building a huge enterprise class thing? Or are you building a individual app? And so we're going to be talking with Justin Esker of Appitalizer. You are the Appitalizer now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and you you have an app. Uh, it's called SignMyPad, right? Yes, I do. Actually, we have a couple apps. SignMyPad is our big one, though. That's right. Yeah. So, and, you know, and you pretty much just had the idea because you saw that there was a need. There, there wasn't a whole lot of tools at the time for this sort of uh, this sort of thing. I mean, we'll focus on SignMyPad first, and we'll talk okay. about some of the other ones. Uh, so I'm curious, like, just in the broad stroke, kind of what was your process from starting with, I've got this idea to actually shipping the, the, the app, just the overall kind of general process. Sure. So actually the idea part is actually the hardest part. Um, I actually had the idea because during the day I'm an Apple consultant. And at the time I was living in Manhattan and I had a, a studio apartment. It was no bigger than like a broom closet or something like that. And I would do these paperwork tickets. And with these work tickets, I would have a client, sign one and I would take one home and they were stacking up very much in my apartment. I didn't have any room for them. So one day, this is 2010. So I was using the iPad one in the bathroom because that's where you use it. And uh, I was playing with this painting program and I realized that I can like draw on the screen and I can draw my signature on the screen. And this led me to the idea of if I can draw my signature in a painting program, why can't I draw my signature in another program that can read PDFs? And my wife was working for a printing company at the time. And I told her this idea and she pointed me to this website called guru.com. It's an outsourcing website. And I drew up a couple sketches and she helped make it a little nicer. And on guru.com, we found a programmer in India who was able to build it for us for like 2000 bucks. And before I knew it, I actually had an app in the app store. Wow. Uh, so guru.com sounds fantastic. And of course there are other like freelancing and, and sort of, uh, what do, you, what do you call them? Contractor yeah, type contract website. work, uh, outsource work. There's the guru.com, um, uh, Odesk, which just recently changed to Upwork, uh, freelancer.com, and elance.com is the, the four big ones in the play in this field. Yeah, I remember Odesk being around for quite a while, actually, yeah. and Elance also. Uh, so, you know, you did some sketches and you gave them basically the specs. It's like, here's what I wanted to do, here's kind of what it to look like, and how much back and forth? Well, first of all, how many months did it take to actually create the app? So we actually gave them not only sketches, but we made a flow chart, which I think is really key for when you're starting out. If you, now obviously this doesn't affect, let's say games, but if you're doing like a business app, the best thing you can do is draw out your windows as best as you can with arrows being like, okay, this button goes to this and this button goes here and so on and so forth. And we were about to hand that off to them. So they were able to really understand what we were, what we were trying to accomplish. As for the back and forth, I spoke to them every day just because I was nervous and I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, my programmers now I speak to once every other day just to get like an update. 
Um, and then for the first version that's on my pad, it took about eight to 10 weeks um, to get it built. They told me six, but I knew that was never going to happen. Uh, and then once it was built, there, there it was in the store and it's been there since. So, you know, what's interesting is that I've been listening to the audiobook, which is actually read by the creator of Scrum, uh, talking about agile development, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, that's not always easy to do when you're talking about someone who's how many hours off, you know, 10, 11 hours difference than you, and you certainly not physically meeting, you're not checking in necessarily, but you sort of did that, right? If you're checking in every day, you're sort of checking, okay, what's the progress on this? Is this working? Is what's broken? Sure. So communication is obviously a huge key to this, right? And um, I live on the East Coast and they were in India. So through Skype, I was able to talk to them from like 7 a.m. to let's say 9 a.m. my time. And as I did more with them, the one programmer who was working for me shifted his schedule so that way he could be there later in the night, their time. So he'd be there later in the day, my time. So I was able to talk to him instead of until 9 a.m. until like 11 or even noon. And he would be there because he, he just came in later and shifted his schedule to work around my schedule, which was really good. Um, the company that we work with now doesn't necessarily do that, but we have a, our project manager is, is actually here in the States. So I, I email him or I can call him whenever. And then he contacts his people in India on their time zone and, and things get done that way. So it's a little more of a hiccup, one extra step, but it still makes it really nice and easy for me. Now, originally, though, with the first version, you didn't have a project manager. You were basically the project manager, the vision, all that stuff, right? Well, the the programming company provided me a project manager who I quickly dismissed and went straight to the programmer because I'm an only because I'm a technical person. Um, if you're not that technical, I would say keep the project manager. But now I use a project manager. In fact, actually, uh, my wife has taken over for project management internally for our software development company, Autrieve, to manage just finishing up some of our projects. that we have. we have so many open projects right now, so she's in charge of that. Now she's talking to their project manager. So now there's even like another layer, but just so that way I don't have to deal with like the day-to-day. -day. So step one, marry someone who's capable of being a project <laughs> manager. Who's also an amazing graphic designer. So she was able to put all, all the graphics you see in most of our apps are, are hers. So that always helps, but you could always outsource that as well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, that's that's something too that I've found is that people who are technically minded, you know, sometimes don't have the left, you know, it's the left brain, right brain thing, yeah. right? There, there are a few unicorns out there, like Lauren Brichter comes to mind immediately, right? The, the guy who created, uh, was it Tweety originally or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Twitter uses that. He is an amazing designer and he's an amazing coder. That's extremely rare. So you usually have to find someone who's going to be doing design and then doing code, right? Uh, definitely. I mean, that's why I think one of the skill sets that I have, because I don't code, actually, like I, I can barely make the hello world thing work in any language. Um, so I have that business mindset. And that allows me to lean both directions on the creative and the coding. Whereas I find that some coders, and, and this, look, I'm not generalizing, and I don't mean any offense to any coders, but some coders that I've dealt with cannot handle the creative side of it at all. They want to make sure that the algorithm works and the math works and the code works and like that this is the way it has to be. On the other end, there's creatives who can't even think about how something may not work in terms of code because it's such a beautiful object that they've created. How dare they not be able to like you know, take my graphics and make it into a working code. That sometimes happens. So, you know, you need to separate from this 
the too far extremes and kind of be more in the middle. And it seems like in my experience, one of the things that's key to this is having that flow chart and having good wireframes to say, here's where things should be and thinking about user interaction and walking through those steps, because it's really the, the, uh, the UX, as they say, right? The user experience where yeah. it's where the code and the design come together and you know that's where your interactions are happening and that's really where the customer is using your app right it's even further than ux so so not to like spout buzzwords but last year ui ux user interface user experience was always was the biggest thing we want to have make sure the user has the best interface and clean and we want to make sure they have the best experience and now it's now it's cx now it's customer experience instead of talking about one particular user now now you're talking about all of your customers and how do you get all your customers to like every last detail of your product. And, and yes, while I'm an independent uh, company and it's just me and my wife, uh, you know, these bigger companies, big enterprise companies are looking at this kind of stuff as well. And this is the direction we're heading. So it's, it's now it's all about how do we make a great looking app that works well, functions well, keeps people in it, keeps people coming back and keeps people buying more apps that we make. It's like this whole thing. And, you know, that's interesting, too, because I, I wonder from a management perspective, like, how do you anticipate that other than, you know, building a great app and, and trying to make it as efficient as possible? How do you manage the sort of customer expectations? Right. Because everybody's coming to this with a completely different skill set. Yeah, uh, it's tough, you know, for me. Right. So we did sign my pad and sign my pad for iPad is different than sign iPad for iPhone and it's different than sign iPad for Android and it was different than sign iPad for Windows which we recently pulled down and and that's only because the the tools that we use to build it are, are very different in all the worlds but look at companies like you know Apple for example they make their devices the iPhone 4 5 5s 6 6 plus whatever they all run the same OS so that that customer experience is the same across all those platforms no matter which device you have so it really depends on what you're building, you know. Uh, uh, Angry Birds is another great example. Angry Birds customer experience was so good with the first one. They've made like what, like a thousand other Angry Birds, and everybody plays them. So it's it. You got to think sometimes a little bit more long term. A lot of people think the app world, the app game, is very short term. How do I turn something around and make a lot of money in six months or a year? And really. While yes, apps and the devices they're on will develop and change over the next three, five years, you really need to think about where your app's gonna be in three to five years and what what you can bring to the table in the future to help build that customer experience. It's it's very complicated to say the least. Yeah, I, the, the project management isn't just the actual app and then you ship it and then you go to bed and you wake up in six months and you're a millionaire, right? right. It's, it, you know, you've gotta continue to push out updates. I mean, they're gonna be bugs, they're gonna be other things. Absolutely. Uh, and you're building a business, not just a like a novelty act, right? Uh, it's it's a long term relationship with your customers. If you want, if you want to make money, yeah. If you if you if you want to be a novelty act, you know, you want to just code something for the hell of coding it, get it up there. I mean, that's cool, but that's not that's not really what I want to do. I want it to be like a long standing thing. I want I want Autrieve and I want SemiPad to be maybe not a household name, but at least a name that uh, that businesses recognize. Yep. So uh, getting back to sort of the nuts and bolts here, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by the different tools that people use. We've used uh, Trello, we've used Slack. Of course, mm -hmm. Slack is absolutely huge right now, and for a reason, it's a really great tool. Yeah, Slack's um, blowing up. Uh, it's amazing. Um, 
So what kind of things do you do? For instance, I'm interested in how do you check in assets, right? So let's say you, you make a change to the interface. How did you actually communicate that? Did you just email back and forth or did you have something that was like a CMS that they used? So for a long time, it was just email and Skype. Um, I'm not a big fan of over tooling. Uh, my mentor and I had this conversation the other day because uh, for my Apple consulting business, we're looking at a scale. And he, he said to me, he, he said something that resonated with me forever. He goes, he said, Justin, you have a nail and you need to put a nail into a piece of wood. What tool do you use? And I was like, a hammer. And he's like, which, ha and, I, and he goes, which hammer? And I go, I don't know, which hammer should I use? And he goes, any of them, because they all do the same thing. So the, the point being that like, as long as you use the tool for the job, it doesn't matter which, which version of the tool, right? So if email and Skype work for you, use email and Skype. If Slack works for you, use Slack. If Trello works for you, use Trello. So there's all these different things. That being said, back to the software development, when I started, I did just email and Skype uh, because that's what I knew and it was very easy for me to communicate and I had them both on my phone. As things have moved on, I've moved to, I had a bug tracker for a long time, but I found that my current company that's doing all my programming couldn't use it. So now we've moved to Trello um, just because I can easily manipulate the cards that are built in there. And it's something that they can use. So for, for me, I have to think about what will communicate my needs, whether they're bug fixes, graphic fixes, whatever, to my programmers in such a way that they will understand what I'm asking for and there's no like back and forth. Because a lot of times when you, especially when you're dealing with people who, who maybe English isn't necessarily their, their first language. And this is true for overseas, India, uh, programmers in, in the Pakistan, Uzbekistan area, programmers in China, it's the same thing. If English isn't their first language, find a tool that will make it easier for them and you bend a little bit to work for them as opposed to making them bend for you. So we use Trello now because we can easily type out, I can type out all the bugs on separate cards and I can like move them around as needed, which is a kind of like a cool, cool thing. Plus Trello is free, so why not? Yeah. Well, and I think that's a big key too. Uh, you hit on one of the things that I have heard many developers uh, run up against, especially when they are, let's say, more technical minded and perhaps don't have the, just the management and people management skills uh, that you might need for a, a, a singular project or an individual project, right? Where you don't have right. eight, nine people working on it. Uh, that thing of communication Mm -hmm. uh, is is absolutely critical, right? And when you're you're trying to communicate through a language barrier, visual communication and being very specific seems to be two of the key elements there, uh, yeah, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. This is why I like doing the flowcharts. Um, or actually, if we're not doing flowcharts and we're rebuilding like a screen. What I'll do is I'll draw, uh, I'll make like a, a Photoshop file or something like that, and I'll put all the new graphics, and I'll put notes next to each graphic with like arrows pointing exactly. This button does this, and this button does that, and this is what, this is nine pixels from the bottom or whatever it is. And um, one of the graphic designers that I've now started to outsource to, who helped me do all of the stuff for Good Night, drew these amazing um, guidelines, these guides essentially for my programmers, knowing that my programmers were overseas. So he was able to draw up and say, okay, this is what the final screen needs to look like. These are all the assets, you know, attached. And here's where the placement is and all these things and whatever it is. Providing them a visual way with as much detail as possible always eliminate, will eliminate not all of the issues, the back and forth, but it will eliminate at least 
75% of that back and forth that, that you just really don't want to deal with when you want to get stuff done. Yeah, it really, it sounds a lot like what you're doing is recreating some of the, the spaces that I've seen at Google and, and other places. And Google's real big about this, about visual stuff. You know, they've mm -hmm. even got color coding to lead you to different areas. And almost everywhere, at least a couple of the offices that I've been to, one was in L.A., they had whiteboards all over the place and they had sticky notes and they have markers everywhere. So it's like if you have an idea, even if it's not your division, you can map it out and you can point to it. And in that way, people are able to like share information and share their, their thoughts very quickly versus, you know, emailing a 3000 word treatise on here's what I think this thing should do. Right. So That's why I have a whiteboard behind me, actually. Like this is all whiteboard sticker. Ah. That I just stuck on my wall so I can write stuff on the fly. Um, and actually, this is my this is my new growth hacking technique. I'm going to cover my face for a second. This is a whiteboard on my laptop. So when I do presentations or something like that, I can like write notes down and like show them in front of people and stuff like that. Um, and I used to, I do that. I also usually have, I don't have it up right now, but I usually have a Kanban board, which is a, a Japanese technique for just-in-time management. And you put post-its up with like things that are being worked on and what's, and they move it along from like needs to be done to being done to done. So you have that visual representation because you know, if someone sends you an email, like you'll scan the email and probably miss like the majority of it if it's too long. But if you have a visual representation, things that move, things that are color coordinated, like you said, like if you look at my whiteboard, I have different colors up there for different projects. Um, email Phoenix and Appleize is green, sign my pet is red, virtual is blue. And now I, I can easily take a look at that and say, what do I need to work on or what what's being worked on right now? Uh, and have a, a very visual way of looking at it, and it and it sparks that memory, that rem, you know, that reminder in my mind, as opposed to going through like my notes or my Slack or or whatever it is to get that job done. Um, two things. So first of all, I, the whiteboard sticker. I just recently discovered that they made this product. I was at a friend's place in San Francisco, and I saw this roll up thing. Yeah. Lay up which blew my mind because a few years ago I used a shower board. Like you could go get the white. It's it's on press board, but they've got a very slick finish that you would put in a in a shower. Right. And we were using that. The problem is over time it gets really crummy and whatnot. Did you cut the sticker for your for your uh, for your no, laptop? Actually, I just bought oh for my laptop. No, yeah. uh, that was somebody bought me something. Great. Honestly, Home Goods. They they sold uh, like they were just round stickers. It was a it was a mix pack between whiteboard and blackboard. Gotcha. Um, and I just found the one that fit. But the ones that are behind me, those are just, I bought those on Amazon for like twenty bucks. Yeah, there were two in a there two just big sheets of whiteboard, or you could buy whiteboard paint, but that's really expensive. I heard. Yeah. Um. So it's also I mean, not that great. You know. Yeah, the whiteboard paint I've also found is not that great. If you can't get a nice, you know, you need to have your Home Depot friends or whatever the Home and Garden TV people come in and do it right. <laughs> Just and make it nice and smooth. Like exactly. there's lumps in this. It bothers me, but I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It gets the job done. Now, exactly. to that in though, uh, you mentioned the, the Japanese board. and I'm on board, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm interested in that because the, this is something I was, I just finished reading The Practicing Mind. Okay. And one of the things that he talks about is that in the West, we're very goal oriented, right? We say, mm -hmm. here's the goal, fixate on that goal. For, to the distraction of all else. Whereas yeah. he, the author is actually a piano guy. He's a piano tuner. He's a piano player. He went to a factory in Japan where they make one of the big 
essentially if you were to take it out of the of a grand piano it looks like a harp almost it's where all the strings are actually strung it's a giant piece of iron mm -hmm. um, that's then painted gold uh, and what was interesting was that at this factory he asked the guys like okay so how many of these do you have to make in a day and the guy was like that's not really what we do here we're trying to make the best quality product if it takes me a day to make one that's what it takes it might take a day to make three but it's really not about the quantity it's about the quality right and that's more process oriented than goal oriented so i'm curious if uh if using that board helped you focus more on the process and i mean you know what your goal is and of course you have to have a goal that's that's the course you navigate by but his point is you know it's the rudder correction it's the course correction that you use uh but really what you focus on is the stroke you know the the, the process of getting there so when i was when I, when I had my kanban board up which I, like i said it's down for right now because i'm in the middle of like a million things but the items that were on there and this is why i use post-it notes were not there were tasks. There were things that had to get done. Um, and in terms of coding, in terms of the apps, there were project pieces. So like one was like hire a graphic designer. The second one was like have graphic designer design front page, have graphic designer design second page, have graphic designer design third page, and so on and so forth. While the goal was finish the app, you have to really break down all of the components to what will take to get from A to B, those are the those are your pieces that are on that Kanban board. So you know how to move them along. So that way you can have multiple things going at the same time. A great example of this, I talk about this book all the time. Uh, there's a book called The Phoenix Project by, I think it's Gene Kim. Don't hold me to that. But, uh, and it's a book about DevOps. But if you, if you read it from the business side of things, it really explains a lot. And, and there's a Kanban board part in there as well. And it's a story about this guy who was like a middle manager IT guy who gets promoted to be the CTO of this entire uh, company who makes parts for like cars. And within six hours of becoming the CTO, which he didn't want to be, the CEO calls him in and goes, we're 12 months behind on this project and it's all your fault. And he's just like, what? how is this possible? I've only been here for six hours. And it, the book is how he transforms their systems from these very antiquated ways this new he uses Kanban boards and he uses management techniques and he uses all these things and it really denotes how corporate america needs to change but um all of these things that we're talking about are in that book and it's a great it's a short read and uh i really recommend that if you if you really want to get into like how to deal with like just-in-time management and stuff like that oh that's fantastic yeah the uh the book of scrum is also has some great case studies in fact one thing that i didn't realize was that the FBI, when they were trying to digitize their records, which a lot of people don't really realize, but that was a monumental task. And, and it was right. years in the making. And if you think about this, as of the year 2000, the way that the FBI worked was largely pieces of paper. Something would get checked out, it would get signed off, it would get put back into a file folder. And that's why they, you know, the 9-11 the report actually said that this was one of the co big contributors to why we weren't able to put those pieces together because departments weren't able to literally do a search right. within their own database to find any of this information. Those pieces were there. They just weren't connected like we're used to the internet today. We soak in right, it. Of time. Just take it for granted. At the FBI, this was a huge, huge problem. And of course, as government projects go, 
they contracted like Northrop Grumman or somebody, you know, some big military contractor. They came in with hundreds of developers. They used the old waterfall technique and said, here's this, and we're going to have this done by here and this, that. Well, guess what? Millions over budget, months overdue, still not even a workable prototype. Right. And that was really the key. And so I want to talk about that for just a second, because what he talked about was minimum viable product. And that was something that these government guys had no idea. He came in, he trimmed the fat. He said, we're going to take this actually internally. They had a team of, I think, like maybe 20 or something developers to do this thing. And they got it in. It was only a few months overdue. And it was only like a few hundred thousand over budget, which for a government thing is like a, That's big, a lot. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's pretty and good. So it was kind of a miracle that they pulled off here and everyone is sort of like, how did this happen? And it was agile development. It was the fact that we let's create something that's minimally workable first and then build on that and, and make that uh, acceptable. So did you follow that or did you guys kind of do more like, let's, let's put it all together and then see what works. So I've actually done both. And um, I can tell you from, from past experience that the minimum viable product is the, actually the way to go. So for sign my pad, MVP was we want to be able to sign PDFs. And that's all it did. And, and, and it worked. You know, we added a couple other features like text. And once we started realizing we could add other things to the PDF, like very easily, we just added them. So that wasn't that big of a deal. But um, that lesson didn't ingrain into my head until I lost $80,000 on one project. And while being hundreds of thousand dollars over budget for the government is a good day, losing $80,000 out of my own wallet is a, is a bad day. So we created a, we were going to create a shared contact program, a very large company that everybody in the Apple world knew went out of business. And we were like, okay, great. We're going to jump on this. And we built, I came up with this brilliant idea and we were going to build this whole thing and the whole nine. And the iPhone was out and we're like, we need to figure out how to get contacts from our system into the iPhone. And while the product that we were going to launch was done in three months, the next nine was us figuring out how to get it into the iPhone. And my programmer was worked on it for months before we brought in another consultant from New Zealand. And like, it was a whole nine, it was a whole big thing. Lo and behold, we're a year late. By then, everyone had already ditched any sort of you know, concept of using this program and gone to like Google or exchange or Cario for contacts and stuff like that. And when we launched, we sold three copies and, 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 and we were like, this isn't going to work. And we had to pull it and it sucked to say the least. And it hurt, but, um, it taught two very important lessons. And these are, these are huge that I, when I talk to people, I, I try to make sure that these two lessons really stand out whether you're doing project management or building a widget or whatever it is. One is um, it's okay to fail as long as you get up and you work on something else, because if you lose $80,000 and you don't work on anything else, you have no chance of making any of that money back. But if you work on something else, you have a chance of at least recouping some of that. And the other part is that is what we're discussing earlier, which is minimum viable product. Short of games, because games are their own realm, Short of games, get version 0.1 out the door as fast as possible. Yes, there will be bugs. Yes, there will be problems. Yes, there will be people screaming and bloody murder and emailing you, why doesn't this work? Or why doesn't this have this feature? And whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, you'll have customers. And that's what's important about this, right? You're not building software necessarily for yourself. Because, well, yes, you might build it for yourself originally. 
you want to make money. That's the end goal. You want to sell it um, to customers. So you need to be able to get those customers and getting version 0.1 out the door will get you those customers. And that's exactly what didn't happen with us. Had we released it within the three months of the company going out of business, the, the move that people would have made would have been, I, I, I would hope, a bigger jump. It would have been easier to get people to switch into our software. But 12 months after that company went out of business was just way too late. And we couldn't acquire those customers to be able to build up from there. So yes, I'm all about minimum viable product. And you know, you, you hit on a good point there, which is that if you're looking to attract customers, you got to get that out there and you've got to start bringing them in. Yes, it's not going to be perfect. No, you're not going to capture all of your customers at once. That's exactly the idea is to capture the core people who right. want that, that main functionality and pull them in and then iterate on top of that. I think a great example of this is actually CD Baby. Uh, the the yeah. guy who created CD Baby had a great talk where he said, you know, look, the way that monolithic uh, development is done is where you try to build the whole car at once. You know, but what we did with CD Baby was we made the bike and then the motorcycle and then the car and then the limousine. And CD Baby really just started as a database. It was just a place where people would go and they would put in their, their catalog and whatnot. It did none of the publishing that you see today. It was an incredibly rudimentary product. I mean, today you would laugh. You would be like, I can do this with a database. Like, are you kidding me? But that was the thing. It was an online database. And he saw, okay, look, we can take this and now we can add this and then we can add that and then we can add that. And now look at CD Baby today. I mean, it's one of the dominant forces in terms of music distribution, right? especially for independent artists. Um, so Justin, we're going to wrap up a little bit here, but I want to yeah. tell us what are some of the other apps that you guys have? Sure. So we have SimiPad, SimiPad Pro, uh, for iPad, iPhone, and Android. We have some, our new SimiPad cloud. This is our newest stuff. We're calling it active document management. Um, so from a web interface, you can push PDFs right into your employees, copies of SimiPad Pro. Great. If you have, uh, employees out in the field that need to capture signatures, um, we have Goodnight, which is our new parental monitoring app. So you install it as a parent on your phone, you install it on your kid's phone. And if your children use their phone during the time they're supposed to be sleeping, you get a little push notification telling you to go yell at them. And uh, our, our pet project that we always love to do, and we actually just recently updated is Truck Food. It's a truck food finder in, it used to be New York City only, but now it's New York, Philly, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Florida, San Francisco, Austin, and... Um, Los Angeles. So we just launched, we just released the new version of that. And uh, we have a couple other things that are in the works in terms of um, apps and software. And then uh, always, if you guys need more help with it, you know, check out my book, Capitalize on Your Idea. I kind of give a walkthrough on exactly how to build the way that I'm explaining it to you guys here. Excellent. Yeah. And that's, that's your new thing is Capitalize. You're the capitalizer, right? Yeah, capitalizing your idea. It's becoming a phenomenon. I think uh, I, I think what's cool about it is that people don't even realize they're doing it in the, until they're in it. And uh, I'm going to let your viewers in on a little secret. We're actually working on an capitalizer accelerator in New Jersey, but it's going to be open for the entire country. Um, so if you go to capitalizeonyouridea.com and check out the Capitalize Lab, you can sign up for more information as it comes out. But we're hopefully going to have that launch before the end of the year. That's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Justin Esker, thank you so much for Thanks, joining man. us. Yeah. Great conversation. And uh, to everybody who's watching, thank you for joining us. We will be back next week, same time, same bat channel. I'm Victor Greta, and this has been Coders. Thanks. Coders is a production of RCR TV News. 
To reach Victor Agreta Jr. or to suggest a show topic for coders, you can reach him on Twitter at SuperPixels. For all the latest news on wireless code and the whole world of wireless, check out rcrwireless.com.